The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. High fly ball, way back in center field. It is out of here. A grand slam home run. And this one belongs to the Reds. UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. A comprehensive look at the Cleveland Indians and Cincinnati Reds. For the sixth consecutive season, we examine each team and their progress through the 2016 Major League Baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. And a very pleasant good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show at this very special time of 7 o'clock here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. The reason we're doing it at this time, in case you've been hidden under a rock for so long that you don't know what's going on in the world. First of all, Trump and Clinton are running for president. Secondly, the Cleveland Indians are up 2 to nothing on the Toronto Blue Jays in the American League Championship Series, and they're playing Game 3 from Toronto in about an hour. So we're going to replay this at 9 o'clock, so we are actually coming to you tonight at 7 o'clock. And in order to do that, we bring in our resident Cincinnati Reds expert from down south, Mark Donahue. Mark, i got to admit, I thought it was a lot more fun three years ago when both teams were in the playoffs. Yeah, and I was thinking about that when I was uh, getting ready to call into you, Dave, that we're fortunate that at least one of the teams allows us to have our show this far into October because there have been years when it has been over for both teams. But, uh, you know, I think you have to look at where the Indians are and and the Reds, could they come back in the next couple of years and be in the same spot? Maybe, and we'll talk about that later on. But uh, it's got to be exciting for Cleveland fans, Indian fans, to uh, look at this team that not only is ahead two to nothing, but as you and I have said from from the really beginning of the season, we, we thought the Indians – were a very, very good team, certainly a playoff-capable team. And the reason was their pitching and the pitching depth that they had. Now, when you can lose your number two starter and get through the first round into the second round of the playoffs with the kind of pitching they've had, I think that is a testament to this staff. And it really bodes well for next year because if you add Carrasco to that Staff. I mean, it's really a devastating pitching staff to come in and face, and uh, I think Indian fans uh, have a lot to be excited about, not only for this year, but going forward. Mark, is this kind of, you're looking at it from, from down south, like I always say, but you're looking at it from outside the Cleveland area. Is this relatively surreal to you that a team could lose not only its number two starter, but its number three starter, and do what it did to the best hitting team and maybe baseball? in the Boston Red Sox, the way they dispensed of them so quickly? Yeah, the question is, was Boston overrated? Was that Eastern Division overrated? Uh, because all those teams got blown out, you know, uh, in, the, in, the, in the playoffs rather quickly. Um, and that's, who knows? The answer to that question is, who knows? But by all indications, Boston was a very, very solid hitting team. They had been all year. They scored a ton of runs high on base percentage, high batting averages, all the metrics were there, and Cleveland just shut them down. I mean, it, it wasn't even close. And so it, it, it's it's pretty interesting how um, the 
the, the depth depth of a pitching staff, I, I think, is something that is really underrated because people always tend to look at the top of the rotation, the first one or two starters, and say, "Wow, because they got Kershaw and they got whoever, uh, that that team is really going to be tough in a short series." But as you well know, you don't always make it to the finish line with your top players. Uh, there are injuries, Carrasco being one, uh, Trevor Bauer getting hurt, uh, other injuries uh, to, to the pitching staff, and Cleveland had just not missed a beat. And, I mean, your bullpen is just devastating. It, it's just a devastating bullpen. And the starters know if they get in trouble, they have every opportunity to, to still win the game because of the bullpen. But it also takes pressure off the hitters because they don't have to score seven runs a game to win. They, the Indians can score two or three runs and have one hell of a chance of winning that ball game, whoever they're playing against. So that takes the pressure off the hitters as well. So it, it's a ripple effect throughout the roster and throughout the team that, that makes them very, very tough in a short series. All right, first things first. Let's get into the Trevor Bauer injury, because that was... That could have been the death knell for this team, Mark, and it may still indeed may be because in an hour we're going to find out if Trevor Bauer is able to pitch with 10 stitches in his right pinky finger from playing with the drone that he says he has done thousands and thousands of times. And let's hear what he had to say to the media yesterday about his injury. I plugged it in like I've done thousands and thousands of times. And for whatever reason... I was sitting like this. I was plugging the battery in, and my finger happened to be right here. For whatever reason, these three propellers didn't spin like they're supposed to, and this one spun up at max throttle. Never happened to me before. I have no idea why it happened. Um, and my finger just happened to be in the in the way of the prop, and it cut me. All right, Mark, you being a pitcher, I know as a catcher, I really never threw the ball with my pinky on the ball. But as a pitcher, there are several pitches that you throw with your pinky on the ball. So, with ten stitches in your right pinky finger, how much is that going to affect him? Well, it depends on, obviously, the healing process, what's happened in the healing process. Some guys heal quick, some don't. Uh, I can't imagine that it wouldn't have some impact because forget the the, the the pain or the the injury itself it's when you throw a baseball the blood from your arm rushes to your hands and i i i've i've pitched enough to know that sometimes you can actually feel your hand you know it hurts because of the power coming through on a fastball or even worse on a changeup where you do need that pinky finger uh, when you throw a, a circle change, your pinky finger is on the ball, or at least it, it's, it's being rubbed by the ball. Now, I don't know where his injury is. Is, is it the, under the finger or on top of the finger? That might have it's, it's literally about three-quarters of the way down from the top of his finger. I guess if you were saying it would be right in the middle of the, middle of the finger to the bottom. Well, I, again, that most guys, I think, would agree if, if you pitched and you're throwing – you know, a 90 mile an hour fastball, that's a lot of pressure on that, on that injury. That's gonna hurt. Now, can he work through the pain? Like Kurt Schilling did, through the, the leg pain or the, the foot pain? I don't know. That, that's, everybody's tolerance is different. But if this thing, uh, reopens because of him pitching, uh, today, and it, 
it starts bleeding again, it's he's likely done for the for the rest of the year because it's not going to have a t- chance to heal. Now, if it's if it's not that serious um, and it, it has healed over the, it's, what it, it happened last week, so happened on Thursday. So he's only had what four or five days to heal that thing. That doesn't sound to me like enough time to have it heal. Now they can put. They have to be careful because you're not allowed to have anything on your fingers when you pitch by baseball. That was my other question. Yeah, you can't. Right have now it. he's got it bandaged. That's well, he can't have it bandaged during the game. And now they can put stuff on it, like liquid stuff on it. I guess that that, that would be okay. Um, that, super glue. That, su- super glue it. Yeah, you can actually do that. Now, would the uh, would the opposition uh, challenge that? I don't know. Uh, but it, it's you cannot have 11 stitches in your finger on Thursday and come back on Monday and not feel it. That's that's an impossibility, and you can't really numb it up because that's going to take away the feeling of the ball in your hand. So I'm surprised they're letting him go today, but I guess they got to find out if he, he's good for the rest of the series or not. Uh, I'd be more inclined to bring him out of the bullpen. Uh, for an inning or two to see how it goes before if you start him, and then if he starts and he can't go, you've now messed up your bullpen for you know the rest of the playoffs. <laughs> Does it tell you something, Mark, that they're letting him pitch this game? That maybe it is not as serious as many people may think it is. Well, I mean, I'm looking at my own finger here in terms of if I had 11 stitches in my finger, uh, unless he's got a really really long finger. Um, that that's that big part of your um, your finger is going to be injured, and I don't know what it tells about the decision to pitch him now, other than they want to find out if he can go or not. Now you can bet your bottom dollar that uh, Francona has a plan in place that if he ha- if he can only get through the first or second inning, they have a backup plan. I don't know who would be in long relief, but uh, that has been decided already because they're not going to send him out there without a. Uh, at least the probability in mind that he can't go beyond the first or second inning. Well, the thing about it is is that the Indians' bullpen, with the exception of Shaw, Miller, and Allen, have not been used since Game 2 of the Red Sox series when they used Dan Otero. Jeff Manship hasn't pitched yet. Zach McAllister hasn't pitched yet. You've got Rick Merritt, who's out in the bullpen. He hasn't pitched yet. He's the second left-hander that the Indians have coming out of the bullpen. So, Mark, when you look at the bullpen, even though it appears that the bullpen has been overworked by the Indians, and maybe three of them have been, boy, they've got three or four other guys out there that they could go to and piecemeal this game together. But I'm looking at, I mean, here here's an article by ESPN right now where they're talking about Bauer's finger injury, just as you said, it could lead to a messy situation for the umpires because Toronto could question anything that he's got on his finger. That's right, and they will. I mean, you can't you can't deny that they're going to to do that. So, and the Indians know that. So, I would be surprised that they do anything heroic, you know, about trying to to superglue it or whatever, because they're probably going to be challenged by it. So um, there's no question that somebody will challenge it, and, uh, you know, umpires will have to make a decision. But uh, it, it is a, a tough situation for for Cleveland. But, again, it's a testament to the fact that they do have uh, reserves in the wings who can come in and throw five, six, seven innings. 
But, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about, you said the, the Indians' bullpen has ever worked. Have you ever seen a better performance than what Andrew Miller has done in, in the playoffs for a reliever? No. Uh, except with the exception of possibly Mariano Rivera in, in some of his World Series outings, especially the time that they won the first three in a row, 96 or, or 97, 98, 99. No, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm even wrong then. 98, 99, and 2000. You know, he was, he was almost unhittable. But Andrew Miller has been more versatile than Mariano Rivera may have been. And he has just been, I mean, I mean, for crying out loud, Mark, he struck out seven men in a row. Yeah, was it nine out of 11 he had struck out or something crazy like that? It was right. an amazing, um, amazing performance. And, you know, people who have argued that uh, Roldis Chapman is the best left-hand or maybe the best reliever in baseball, Andrew Miller does more with less stuff. And he he looks unhittable at times. I mean, the way he comes at the hitter, from that three, it looks to me that it's three three quarter arm, uh, but the way he slings it, it it's really a, a if you're a left hand hitter facing Andrew Miller, you're in for a tough a tough at bat because he's not going to give you anything and he and he throws much harder than I thought he threw. I mean, I, they had him at ninety seven ninety eight at some of the uh, some of these pitches, but coming out of that arm slot with that slider. You can't discern whether it's a breaking ball or a, a fastball because he throws the sliders so darn hard, and that's that's what makes him really tough. And he has a slow curve, too. And, and it's uh, it's really right now, American League hitters have not figured him out. And uh, it, which raises the question: What are the Indians going to do with him long term? Well, they've got him signed up for the next two years. Is it two years? I thought he was only he had one year left. Okay. No, he's he's up. He's two years. He's that was one of the reasons that they went ahead and pulled the trigger on this deal was they had him definitely set up for the next two years. Well, that bodes well for the Indians, and with the assuming they're going to get everybody back next year and they're starting rotation. Uh, no matter what happens between now and the end of the playoffs, that the Indians, even if they're knocked out. Uh, that they have to be the odds-on paper next year, you know, to win the World Series and certainly reach the World Series with that pitching staff. Well, and, and the question is now, Mark, is that Terry Francona has really left the window open as far as starting Corey Kluber in Game Four. Now, the question was, you know, I thought when they did this. Well, the question I want to ask you before I get into this, do you think Andrew Miller is as devastating from the left-hand side as Randy Johnson used to be? Well, yeah. I, I You know, relative to the fact that Randy Johnson spent most of his career as a starter. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean I, he was probably the toughest left-hander, and, and I put Steve Carlton into this uh, in, in Sandy Kopax. I mean, those three guys – were as devastating left-hand starters that you could ever face. Uh, Johnson, just by virtue of his size, was probably the most intimidating. You know, six foot ten coming at you at at a hundred hundred plus miles an hour with a slider that could break your legs. Uh, he, to me, he was probably the most intimidating left-hander ever to pitch. But out of the bullpen, uh, left-hand pitcher out of the bullpen. I mean, besides Miller and Chapman. Uh, I can't think of one that was that dominant as, as those two are coming out of the bullpen. 
uh, in the history of baseball. I mean, think back, a, a lot of great relievers, uh, Rivera being maybe the best, uh, most of the guys were right-handed that, that came out of the bullpen because they, you know, they, that's just the way, the, the, the knock was that left-handers could never throw hard, as hard as right-handers. Well, that was debunked by, by Randy Johnson and, and Steve Carlson. But, you know, people forget Carlson didn't throw 100 miles an hour. Right. He, he, he threw, you know, he was, he was high, mid-90s at best, but he got by with an unbelievable curveball. It wasn't a slider. He had a curveball that was virtually unhittable. And I saw that guy pitch probably 50 games in my life because I lived in Philadelphia. And he was was unhittable. But Andrew Miller, he's got that slingshot-type delivery that, uh, as a hitter, I would not want to go up there against him left-handed. And even right-handed, everything is down and in or up and away. And, you know, that's the way Chapman pitches now. You know, Chapman throws harder than Miller. But I don't think he's more deceptive than Miller. Miller has that that motion that uh, I think would be really hard to pick up even for a right-hand hitter. Yeah, Chapman comes more over the top than Miller does. That's right. And that's what I think gives – that. that's why it looks like every pitch that Miller throws has movement on it, even his fastball. It it, it comes at an angle where uh, – I don't know if he throws a, a two-seam or a four-seam or both, but it, it seems like every – fastball he pitches moves four, five, six inches on a fastball. So it, it, it has to be the way he's releasing the ball in the arm slot. And, you know, of course it could be opt- optical illusion on TV, but uh, you know, when you look at him, he, he throws that slider, and if you don't swing at it, it's likely to hit your back foot if you're hitting right-handed because it comes mm-hmm. down and in so sharply, and you can't square it and it's because it's coming at a different angle. Chapman he comes over the top, and his his fastball explodes. And it, it now this is an optical illusion, but it appears it it goes up at the end when it reaches the plate. It doesn't really. That's a physics impossibility, but that's the way it looks. And from the hitter's eyes, you you see it coming in maybe at your at your waist or below your waist, but then you're you can't get on top of it. Now, who who would I? If I had to face one, who would I rather face? Probably Miller, only because he doesn't throw quite as hard as Chapman. And if Chapman is, is throwing strikes at 103, 104 miles an hour, it is very difficult for any human being on the planet to hit it. Now, Miller, when he does get hit, he he, he breaks a lot of bats because right. of the movement. And, I, and Chapman doesn't do that. Uh, you know, he'll strike you out just by overpowering you. But when when Miller, man, I, I think it was, I forget who it was, it was against, uh, Toronto, I guess, he broke like five bats in an inning. <laughs> you know? He did. <clears throat> right. And a couple of guys lost their bats into the crowd. Yeah, because you, 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 can't, you can't get the barrel on the ball because it's moving so much. And, and that's why that, that fastball moves as much as some guy's sliders move because it, he's throwing at that angle, uh, three-quarter arm, uh, or even lower sometimes, it seems to me. But uh, you can't really tell until you see it live because TV distorts things. But uh, right now, I mean, I think Chapman and he are the two best relievers in baseball, and I don't think anybody's close. 
Do you have any problem with the way Francona is using Miller in the in the Boston and Toronto series so far? Hell no. I mean, uh, it, Francona is is trying to win a world championship, <clears throat> and I don't think Miller minds either. And no, I mean, he doesn't. He's got no problems with it whatsoever. And I, I think that, you know, that's what uh, Joe Torre did with, with Rivera. Rivera would come in, particularly in the playoffs, he pitched more than one inning. He pitched two, two and a half, you know, two and two thirds innings sometimes to get them to the point that they can win a world championship. Of course, uh, that's what they should do. Uh, this idea with Chapman, the Reds saving Chapman for the ninth inning, for an entire year he never pitched more than one inning a game, which is absurd. Just absurd. And why you would waste an arm like that, like the Reds did. I've said this before. He, he was the most mismanaged asset in the history of the Cincinnati Reds. Yeah, and I want to get into that here in a little bit when we start looking at the Cubs-Dodgers series. But, okay, you say that. Now, let's get back to Corey Kluber, because Francona is thinking about starting Kluber in Game 4. Um, the The consensus is, up around here, is that if the Indians lose Game 3, he will probably pitch Kluber in Game 4 with the Indians up two games to one. Now, I thought going into this series, Mark, that Kluber would pitch one, four, and seven on three days rest in between each game. Almost like how the Dodgers, back in 1988, used Oral Hershiser to pace their pitching staff, was how I thought Francona was going to use Kluber. Then he came out and said that Clevenger was probably going to pitch game four. How much of a difference does it make to a pitcher at this time of the year coming in off of a four-game rest that he's had all year long? He hasn't pitched on three days rest in two years. Is it much of a difference? Let me ask. Let me answer that by asking you a question. If you have to go to game five, if you have to, for whatever reason, who do you want, Clevenger? If I have to go to a game five, that means or, it's either... We're either up three to one or tied two two. Yeah, if you, if, if you have to go to game five, uh, who do you want pitching, Kluber or Clevenger? I'd rather have Kluber. Of course. So I think you take. I wouldn't start Kluber. <clears throat> the, 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 the counter argument to that, if you pitch him on three days rest on game four, he's going to have to pitch on three games rest on a game seven. Yes. And that's what you have to weigh. You want your guy fully rested to go into game five and can put you up three to two, but you can't use him the rest of the series. Or do you want to use him twice? Maybe pitch him only. You know, what, what could happen is you start him game four, you get a big lead and you pull him out. So he doesn't have to go nine innings and throw 125 pitches. Right. So that, that's well, the only dice pit- rule. He only pitched 92 in the first game. Yeah, and that's what you want. You want him between 95 and 100 pitches, something like that, 90, 100 pitches. But if you could get him out of there after throwing only 65 or 70 pitches and you have a five-run lead with that bullpen, and that's what I would do, uh, throw that bullpen at him, uh, it's a dice roll. And this is the bad thing about a manager. No matter what he does, if they don't win at all and they lose that series, He's going to be second guest, no matter what Absolutely. he does. Absolutely. And, and here's here's what Terry Francona had to say about pitching Kluber. We've talked about not just Game Four, 
but games three, four, five, six, and seven because there's a little bit of ambiguity there with Trevor and his finger, um, with you know Clevenger not being stretched out. So there are some options I think for us moving forward. I think we'll go game by game, and all of our pitchers are unbelievably cooperative, which is not shocking. And we'll we'll keep communicating with them because the one thing we don't want to do is make a decision that we think puts our team in a good spot if the pitchers don't feel that way. So we'll keep communicating with them, and we'll do what we think is in our best interest. But it can't just be for for one game because there's always a trickle down effect. So if if this if you're going to do something in game three, you got to be prepared for four, five, and six too. Mark, what I find amazing there is that Francona is going to make the final decision along with Mickey Calloway. They're going to discuss this, but they involve the entire pitching staff in every decision that they make so that these pitchers feel like they're part of the decision-making process. And I think that's why he's such a good manager, that he's not – his ego isn't so big that he has this dictatorial approach with his pitching staff. And I think that's reflected in how that that pitching staff is really a unit that they you know they're in it together. They're trying to win a World Series, and that's what you want. You don't have egos there. You don't have guys that that are bad mouthing the manager's decision because again, no matter what decision is made, if it doesn't work, people are going to second guess it. And that's what I don't like about the press is there's no there's no right or wrong answer here. I mean, you're trying to win, so. <clears throat> that's why I asked you the question, who do you want game five? Uh, we're only going into game three, but who do you want in game five? Game five is always the pivotal series or game in a series because you're going to either it's over, you're going to win 4-0, you're going to be up going into that game up 3-1 or it's 2-2. So that, that, that game five is always so important in, in a short series. Now, in game five, I like that Corey Kluber. So if it was me, I would probably, especially if I'm up three one, and I, I want, I want my ace out there and a chance to close it, close it out. And he's also, he would have four days rest. I can make the argument that Kluber, you're up three one, you're going into game five, you got Kluber on the mound. I like my chances. And well, then you, we'll find out. Then you got we'll six and out. seven. You, you you can you know you, you have a chance to, to to close it out on those games too. Well, the rest of the schedule for this week after tonight's game, because the Cubs and the Dodgers are bigger TV markets than Cleveland and Toronto, the Cubs and the Dodgers get the primetime slots for TV coming up the next couple of nights. So tomorrow in Game 4, the Indians and the Blue Jays play at 4 o'clock. They do the same thing on Wednesday. That'll be at 4 o'clock. If they have to go to Game 6, it comes back to Cleveland on Friday, and that will be at 8 o'clock because that will be an off day for the National League. And then Saturday, Game 7 will be announced. It will either be at 4 o'clock in the afternoon or 8 o'clock, depending upon the situation between the Cubs and the Dodgers. That's just the way it is, Mark. The Cubs and the Dodgers are bigger TV markets, so they get the the primetime slot. Let me ask you one more thing before we move on. Were you surprised how Kluber just dismantled that Toronto lineup? 
you know, I've been surprised at the way he and Tomlin dismantled. Now, if you listen to Jose Bautista, which it's a great segue to get into, Jose Bautista feels that there is a giant conspiracy, Mark, between Major League Baseball against the Toronto Blue Jays, that the umpires are calling the pitches off the outside corner strikes. And it is totally throwing the Toronto Blue Jays' bats into oblivion because they don't know what is a strike. And quite honestly now, the Indians don't have to throw the ball right down the middle of the plate. Well, I've seen a lot of pitchers during my lifetime, Mark, I've never seen a lot of pitchers make a living for as long as they have by throwing the ball down the middle of the plate. Yeah, and this reminds me of the, the things you used to hear about. And some of it had some justification if you look at the replays. Uh, Don, Don Maddox, or uh, Dick Maddox, Maddox and Glavin, uh, they used to pitch the same way. They never threw a strike over the middle of the plate. And the umps gave them the outside corner. They certainly gave them the black and maybe an inch off the black consistently. But if you know that's the case, if you're a hitter, you've got to make the adjustment, and you've got to crowd the plate because those guys aren't going to overpower you. They're not going to beat you inside. They never did. They worked and lived and prospered on the outside corner in the umps because they threw strikes. I mean, I remember a game against the Reds. Maddox pitched, and not only was it like an hour and – 18 minutes or something, some crazy short amount of time for a game. Uh, but he threw 78 pitches, and 67 of them were strikes. And, I mean, he hit every pitch. And when he missed, he missed by an inch on the corners. Strike after strike after strike. And if that's what the pitcher is doing and the ump is calling it, then you as a hitter, you have to make an adjustment. And they're not making the adjustments right now. Well, they haven't Am yet. I surprised? Yeah, am, am I surprised at what Kluber did? No, I'm more surprised at what Tomlin did because I've come to anticipate that from Kluber. Ever since July 3rd, he's been lights out. He's had one bad start, Mark, since July 3rd. And there's a reason for that. He's a great pitcher. Probably one of the best pitchers in baseball that goes unrecognized. Well, he doesn't go unrecognized, but... Uh, Not on this show, but he does nationally. Uh, what was what was he doing wrong at the beginning of the year? Was it just not getting support, or was he leaving He wasn't the ball? getting any support, yeah. You know, what I like is one of the things that I was complaining about at the beginning of the year was Francona's use of the outfield when Kluber was pitching. And Francona has transformed his thinking now to where he's leaving Chisholm in against left-handed pitchers. He showed that against Boston, against David Price, and against uh, 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 Drew Pomeranz. He showed that. He left Chisholm in, and Chisholm's hitting the ball right now. He's got a consecutive game hitting streak of every postseason game the Indians have played. He's gotten a base hit, including a three-run homer off of David Price in that series against Boston. But he wanted Chisholm in for his defense in right field, and that's something that stung I mean, you and I have talked about Rajay Davis. He is frightening in the outfield. Yeah, I, I don't get that. Uh, <laughs> uh, they put him in center field, too, and that's what got me. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, and I saw him make two plays out there, and really, they were routine fly balls. But the way he tracked the ball and the way he was looking up at it, 
his glove was moving as the ball was coming down. I said, what's wrong with that guy? Is the sun in his eyes? And then he caught it, but he caught it on the heel of the glove, and the ball almost came out at the top by the webbing. And I saw it twice. I said, damn, Dave was right. <laughs> that guy, he, he, he's scary out there. He's scary. Mark, this Cubs-Dodgers series, it's tied up at 1-1, heading back to L.A. First thing I want to ask you is, I'm watching the Dodgers, and I've really got to give Dave Roberts a lot of credit for a first-year manager. He knows how to pull the strings on this team. Because, and I know you're going to disagree with me on this, but i got to tell you, when you look at the everyday lineup that the Dodgers put out on the field, they're not much better than the Reds. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think their they're starting eight are, are marginal players at best. And, I mean, not, not at best, but they're, they're, they're not. You can't point to me other than Gonzalez at first base, a guy that really puts the fear of God in you from in their lineup. But, you know, they play small ball well. they got great pitching. they got decent defense. And they're a team that's, in my opinion, overperforming right now. But, you know, the, the Cubs are the darlings of, of baseball right now. Everybody wants the Cubs to win and look at the young talent. And the, and the Cubs over the next decade are going to win a ton of games. I mean, this team over the next 10 years could win 1,000 games. That's how good they are if no injuries occur. But they're not proven in the playoffs yet, at least at this level. So I was not surprised that the Dodgers won. But I don't think the Cubs are a, a shoe-in to win this series against the Dodgers. And if Kershaw can pitch like he did yesterday, uh, or they, whenever he pitched day before, uh, they're, they're going to be hard to beat in, in a seven-game series. If you got to face Kershaw three times, uh, that's, that's going to be awfully tough to, to overcome that. And the Cubs have to prove that they're championship quality by going out there and beating a Kershaw in a big game. And they're going to have to do that to win this series. And I think that is Kershaw's best postseason performance ever. Well, yeah, he's not been known as a guy who has performed well in the playoffs by his own admission. He's been lit up. I remember that game a couple of years ago where he gave up five runs in the eighth inning after being staked to a three-run lead. Uh, that that was that was shocking. But you know, you mentioned Kershaw, but there's another guy that has to be the biggest disappointment in playoff history given his reputation and the fact that teams always trade for him. You know what I'm talking about? John Lester. No, Price. Price? His, he's got an 0-8 record in the playoffs. Right. And that, to me, is... To me, he never looked to me to be nearly as overpowering as an Andrew Miller at the bullpen or other starting pitchers that you're paying a lot of money for, like Kershaw or, or Kluber or any of the pitchers that have reputations for being big-game pitchers, he doesn't have that put-away stuff. And to me, when when the Indians faced Price, they didn't look like they were intimidated at all. I mean, they went there and whacked him. I mean, uh, he, he just didn't look like he had the kind of stuff that would that would overpower a team. And yet, he gets all this money, and <laughs> he's been traded, what, three times now? Because he's supposed to be the guy, you know, he, he's your stopper. And outside, even when he was uh, down in Florida, I mean, he with Tampa, he, he never had that big put away game in the playoffs that got a team over the over the hump. 
you know, I I want to get back to Dave Roberts because I've been impressed with what he has done with this Dodgers lineup. I mean, Andre Ethier, he seems to be able to put him into a situation where Ethier is going to shine. You talk about bringing in bullpen guys. He knows how to use his bullpen. Their starting pitching mark is in shambles right now. It's in shambles. He doesn't know who he's going to go to from one day to the next, but that bullpen and the way that he's used it and the way that he's used the guys off the bench it has been masterful. You know, Kimmy Jansen is, is, is underrated, I think, in terms of what he brings to that bullpen because he can go more than one inning, too. And he pitched, what, three innings the other night, and uh, he, he really got them that win. So, yeah, that, that bullpen, and I think the managers today now are looking toward a, a bullpen as a, as a unit and, and looking beyond that, that one inning closer. And that, that, that's what Francona has done. Uh, that's what Johnson, or, um, uh, Dodger manager, his name just flew out Roberts. of my brain. Roberts has done. And I think that's going to be the trend in the future, that your bullpen is going to be made up of guys who can go more than one inning. Getting back to my theory is that is what baseball over the next decade is going to evolve to. You could have a, a bullpen approach to a, a, a rotation where you're looking for your starter to go as far as he can, go three, four, five, six innings, but he knows he's coming out after a certain number of pitches, and you bring him, you bring in the guy who's going to be your your fourth, fifth, and sixth inning guy, and then your seventh, eighth, and ninth inning guy, and that could be a way that baseball evolves, because you can't look at these starting pitchers because of the injuries that they that they incur by going out there and throwing 120, 130 pitches every fifth day. It is going to ruin their arm. End of story. It's, it's absolutely a fact. It's documentable. And, and pitchers are, are, I think, going to come to the conclusion, hey, look, I can go out there and throw 100 miles an hour for three innings and get my ass out of there. <clears throat> and then you have somebody else come in, like Andrew Miller, come in and pitch three innings. I think that's going to be a trend in the future. Mark, okay, you bring that up, and the way Joe Madden has used Araldus Chapman, not only in the Giants series, but in this series against the Dodgers, first of all, it almost backfired on him in Game 4 in the Giants series when he brought Chapman in in the 8th inning. And he's done that a couple of times now, especially the other night. Last night, he did it against the Dodgers, brought him in in the 8th inning. It paid off then... But in the game four against the Giants, it didn't because he gave up the runs. But then the Cubs came back in the ninth inning, ended up winning the baseball game. Are you happy with the way that Madden has used Chapman, not just using him as a closer in the ninth, but bringing him in to shut things down in the eighth also? Absolutely. I think that's smart. Uh, and it didn't pay off in the previous series. Chapman gave up two hits and a walk and a run, a key run. But that's not going to happen very often. And... I think you have to look at these ball players, these pitchers, and uh, your bullpen on a situation by situation basis. Because in many cases, you have a guy like Chapman who has a high probability to strike out anybody in the lineup, but you bring him in the ninth inning to close the game, and he's pitching to the sixth, seventh, and eighth hitter. Well, you've just wasted him because maybe the inning before he should have faced two, three, and four yeah, because bases were loaded or whatever, whatever the situation was. So 
I think it's idiotic that some of these managers live by this recipe that I, I'm only going to use him to start the ninth inning no matter who's coming up. It makes no sense. And that's not the way it had been done years ago with the bullpen. You'd have guys come in and get out of a tough jam. So I, I think Madden should be commended for that. And, uh, you know, I think most of the, the pitchers would prefer to be out there in, in, a, in a tough situation. It gets the adrenaline going. And that's why many times relievers don't pitch well, closers don't pitch well, if they've got a three- or four-run lead. Because, you know, you can't get pumped up a hundred times a year to come out there and throw as far as you can. But the game is on the line, you do. You come in, okay, bases are loaded, there's two out, i got to get a left-hand hitter out. I'm going to throw, come in and throw gas. You know, that's that's the mentality. And I like what Madden does. As a matter of fact, I, I can't think of many things Madden doesn't do well. You know, I'll tell you what, this National League series has really proven to be a chess match between Roberts and Madden. And I, I've got to be honest with you, I love Joe Madden. I think he's a great manager. And Dave Roberts is matching him step for step right now. Yeah, but, you know, I think what is really interesting is the the difference in the two series because the designated hitter. I, I think the National League series is much more exciting because of all the moves the managers can or, you know, have, have the potential of making. And in the American League, I think it takes away a huge element of suspense. And, you know, what do you do with your pitching staff? When do you pinch hit? All those things apply in the National League, and they don't apply in, in the American League. And it, 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 I forget what game it was. Um, that I think it was the – you see, who was it? The, the Dodgers – the Dodgers Wash- played Washington. Yeah, they played Washington. And in one of those games, each team used all 25 players off the bench right. in a single game. And that's exciting because you, then you, you have the idea, okay, well, we're out of players now. we got a pinch hit with a pitcher or something like that, you know. And it, I think it adds a huge excitement element to those games. And it, it probably does. I mean, it, it, it really does. And do you think this series – you know, I, 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 Greg Mitchell said something to me a couple of days ago about how, and I think thought this was funny, Mark. He said Major League Baseball really has got to decide if they're going to keep the DH or get rid of it. And I started laughing. I said that's the same argument that they've been having now since 1974. Yeah, the, I think Major League Baseball would get rid of it. The fans would not mind. It's the union. Because it's 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 more players that can stick around beyond their ability to play, and I think that's the the other thing that you have in the American League players on the roster that normally wouldn't be there because they can't play defense, and the idea this is protecting jobs is stupid because uh, if if you can play defense you'd have just as much chance of, of being on a team than a guy who who can't because you you have that extra skill set, so. It makes no sense to me why you have the DH. It, it, it just doesn't add anything to the game at all, and it, it detracts from the game. And I heard one of the announcers the other night echoing the same thing. Uh, I think it was after the game on, on uh, either ESPN or uh, MLB Network. They were talking about that very issue of the excitement level in the National League because of the moves that a manager can make that can't that, that don't come into play in the American League. So I, I, I'm I'm a big proponent of having the DH struck down and, and buried once and for all. 
Oh, I am too. The thing about it, you know what's interesting? Terry Francona probably makes more moves than any of the National League managers, or as many moves, because of the way that he, he likes to use pinch hitters and match up lefty-righty, and he does it with most of his outfielders and changes his lineup day by day. Mark, if you don't know what the Indians have done throughout the entire regular season, you're probably shocked at the number of moves that Francona makes during a game. Yeah, I, I think for for a National League guy, you know, he's he's played in the National League. Francona did play with the Reds, played with the Phillies, and he's managed enough times to know what what can be done with, say, a National League approach to the game. But at, at the same token, when you have the, the decision of keeping Kluber in for an extra inning, uh, it becomes a moot point when you're going to have a DH. So it, it does take away from the game. But Francona, I mean, we've talked about this before. If he wins a world championship with with Cleveland, is he a Hall of Famer? Uh, absolutely. And the same, I think the same thing about Theo Epstein with the Cubs. If he wins a World Series with the Cubs, he's in the Hall of Fame too. Absolutely. And I, if that's what you judge uh, that kind of uh, recognition, uh, it's all about winning. And, you know, look at Joe Madden. If he wins with the Cubs, is he a Hall of Famer? That's a good question. That's probably more of a debatable question than I think Epstein and Francona. That one's more debatable. Yeah, Madden got to the World Series with Tampa Bay, did not win it, but he got there. If he wins with the Cubs, you're, you're giving him the Hall of Fame nod because he was able to manage the team that broke the streak. You didn't do that with Francona. I don't think Francona gets to the Hall of Fame, Mark, unless he wins a World Series with another team, be that the Indians or somebody else if he ends up leaving the Indians for another team. I don't think he makes it. So does yeah, that I mean think you that... may be right, but, but I'm talking about Madden. I look at Madden. Number one, I think he's a great manager. But he just moved into the best situation he could ever move into. Oh. I mean, the Cubs could win. They could win four or five World Series. If that's the case, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. He, he did exactly what Sparky Anderson did. He came into a team in 1970 <laughs> that I think any bozo could have walked into Riverfront Stadium with that lineup and won a couple World Series and a couple of pennants and maybe more. You know what my dad says about that, Mark? He takes completely the opposite view about Sparky. He says Sparky Anderson made his career when he went to Detroit because he knew what he had in Detroit. Well, of course. I mean, he, he, he would have taken the Cincinnati job without Johnny Bench and Tony. He would have taken it because he wanted to manage in the big leagues. Right. So, so he, got, he got lucky there. He got strategic when he went to Detroit. When he got fired by Cincinnati in 1978, which is the dumbest move ever. Dick Wagner. Dick Wagner uh, traded Tony Perez and got rid of Sparky Anderson. Smart move. Right up there with Walt Jockety. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but Sparky went to Detroit because he he knew that team had a chance to win, and they did win. And he, you know he's forever immortalized in Detroit as well as Cincinnati. And so yeah, if you go to two organizations and you win two World Championships you're going to be recognized as a Hall of Fame manager. 
and it, great winning percentages in both teams. And I remember what what year was that that Detroit got up with a thirty five and four record? Thirty five. Eighty four. Eighty four. Year they won the title. I mean that that is just unbelievable. Uh, they they had four or five you know winning streaks of more seven or eight games to start the start the year off. And that, that, that's just incredible. My father still talks about the night that he heard Sparky Anderson being interviewed in Cleveland by famed sportscaster Pete Franklin. And Pete Franklin ended the interview by saying, this was when Pete, this is when Sparky was in between jobs. He said, well, maybe we'll see you in Cleveland soon as manager. Sparky kind of laughed and said, I don't think so. <laughs> and two weeks later, he was named manager of Detroit. Well, he, he knew, he looked at that roster <laughs> yeah, you know, Kurt Gibson and uh, Trammell and, and all those guys. Whitaker. <clears throat> Whitaker, yeah. I mean, that team was, was poised to win. And that's, you know, that's part of being a shrewd manager is where can I take my talents with, with a team that has a chance to win? I mean, if you go to the 19, what, 73 Phillies, uh, is that team that lost all those games despite Steve Carlton winning 27 games? I don't care who you put in that seat, Sparky Anderson, anybody else, you're still going to lose 100 games. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't matter. And that's what happens is, is good managers like Madden, they get their shot to, to move, you know, to a team that's going to win. And that's what he did. And, uh, you know, it couldn't have not been better for him if, if they win. That's right. Mark, before we get to this day in baseball, what is going on with the Reds right now? I know obviously not a lot because it's, you know, the postseason. Baseball doesn't allow any trades, anything to happen. But what's going on? Well, I, I think that they're, out of the, the second half of the season, there was there's a modicum. The Reds only finished, what, two games below 500 in the second half of the year. And uh, that's not bad for the team that had expectations to lose 100 games or more. Um, so I think there's a, a reason to be somewhat optimistic uh, particularly on the offensive side. Uh, if Devin Mazzaracco can come back and make a contribution like he did, what, three years ago now, uh, the, the Reds are have a really solid offensive uh, force. Uh, Peraza hit 325, 330 uh, in, a, in a number of appearances that, that I, I think go beyond the luck factor. I mean, this guy showed he can hit. And you got Joey Votto, of course. You have Brandon Phillips, who hit 291 this year. Uh, I don't think Zach Cozart will be back, even though he had a, he had a good first half, and then his knee wore down. Uh, so, you know, with, with the emergence of um, Adam Duvall you know, hitting 35 home runs, driving in over 100 runs, if Billy Hamilton comes back, the, and then Shetler in right field. I mean, I think he, he exceeded uh, the production of Jay Bruce by a great deal in the second half of the year. So there's reasons to be optimistic. The key is going to be the Reds have to go out and shore up that bullpen. That that cost them probably 20 games this year. That that you put that you know put that around, and all of a sudden the Reds are in the playoffs, or at least competitive. So that's what they have to do first, and that's kind of an unexciting approach to changing a team. But in the Reds' case, it's vital. So I would look the Reds to add. Uh, a significant amount of money into the bullpen and maybe one starter that they, they're going to have to get. And I'm talking about maybe a Rich Hill type guy, uh, you know, not, not a, a superstar, but somebody who can get that balance and eat up some innings in that starting rotation. So 
expectations as of now, the middle of October, uh, six months before the season starts, I think the Reds have a chance, you know, to have a chance to play 500 ball next year. And if they if they don't, I don't think they'll miss it much. I don't see them being much over 500 uh, with the team they currently have. But it's a young team, and there's some reason to be optimistic for the Reds going certainly into 2018. You don't think it's false optimism? Not no, not based on what I saw in the second half of the year. I mean, with Peraza at shortstop, you're going to have a guy who who can hit 300, and he's also can steal 50 bases. And if you put him and Hamilton in front of Votto uh, and have Duvall backing that up uh, and Shebler, that that's a that's a, and we're not even counting Mezzarocco at this point. That that's a pretty strong lineup. They're going to score some runs. That wasn't the problem this year. They, they scored enough runs to win to you know to win a division. They just didn't pitch, and that's what they have to work on. And uh, when I see these bullpens of the Indians and the Dodgers and the Cubs and even the Red Sox, who didn't show well in the playoffs, uh, the Reds have huge gaps in that bullpen, and that's what you have to shore up. And uh, so I look for them to go out there and sign some free agent guys. Um, and maybe even Amir Garrett comes into that bullpen next year uh, to help. Uh, then you have to decide, you're going to start Rocio Iglesias, you're going to put him in as a closer. Um, what do you do with Lorenzen? Uh, those guys, those were the guys that made the difference in the second half. And if you can add two more of those guys to your bullpen, and Amir Garrett may be one of the guys they're looking at, uh, then then you can you can make some progress starting you know starting next year. So I, I think the Reds have a chance uh, to be okay in 2017. Zach Cozart with the team or not with the team? He's not going to be with the team. I don't think there's any way they, they keep him. Uh, I think Seattle, that deal that they almost made, will probably go to Seattle if they had to bet. And, uh, you know, he did hit 17 home runs in the first half mm-hmm. of the season. <laughs> that's, not, that's not bad. And he plays a great shortstop, but his knee wore down after surgery, which is kind of expected. Yeah. Well, today in baseball, Mark, I I know you'll remember this, and I thought rather than just tell you what happened, I would let everybody go ahead and listen. Well, let, to let what me happened. ask. Let me ask you: Is this the Don Larson game? No, it no. Was in September, that's right. No. Okay. This is today in baseball in 1989, allowing Jose Canseco to score, and he fails to get Dave Parker at second base. So the Oakland A's take take. Well, I don't know if we're on the air. We are in commercial, I guess. Yes, yes, we hear you. I guess...
That was just before Game 3 of the 1989 World Series, Mark, between the Giants and the A's. Yeah, I remember it well, and uh, it's interesting and and, and sad that the the announcer was not aware, of course, of what had happened uh, in the city of San Francisco, the number of people who had died at that moment uh, with the bridge collapses and and all that happened on on, uh, the the, the bridge uh, going between Oakland and San Francisco, the collapse there had killed a number of people at that that moment. And uh, so that was... uh, I guess that had to be one of the strangest uh, interruptions in baseball history. I can't think of one that would be more uh, more strange or more, or more tragic than than that. Has Al Michaels been a part of two of the greatest things that? And I hate to use that as a great moment, but you know, it, it was a surreal moment in baseball. But then the the hockey, <laughs> yeah, part of the U.S. Olympic <clears throat> hockey upset. Sure, I mean. Uh, do you believe in dreams or what was it? Miracles. Do you believe in miracles? Yeah. Uh, and of course he, I'm sure he had rehearsed that. And of course Al Michaels, people may have forgotten, uh, was a res announcer, um, in 19, I guess 72. 72. Uh, when Johnny Bench hit the game tying home run, uh, of Dave Justy to, to tie that and the Reds went on to win, uh, the pennant. And his call of that is still legendary. His voice breaking and, and and all that and uh, uh, that that was you talk about a guy who's been at the center of so many great events. Well, what a career he's had! And you keep thinking about him as a young guy, but he's got to be in his sixties by now. And, oh, he's uh, in his seventies. Al Michaels is is he that old? Yeah, I guess he yeah, is. he's in his seventies. I mean, he's he's been around for a long time. He still has that youthful look about him, even though he's lost his hair. But uh, he's he's been a it's some of the great events of all time. He wears a rug? Uh, yeah, I think he does. If he doesn't, he needs one, uh, like, <laughs> I, like I do. Uh, but uh, you know, he's, I, I guess he is older than I am, so he's got to be in his 70s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He he left. you remember where he left Cincinnati to go to in 72? Uh, San Francisco. San Francisco. Went to the Giants. Yeah. Mark, okay, let's put you on the spot. Oh, no. The Cubs and Dodgers, who ends up winning that series? Uh, God, I hate to say this. Um, I think it's going to be the Dodgers. Do you really? Yeah. Any okay? Any reasoning behind it? Quickly? Yeah, because I think they're going to have to face Kershaw three times, and I, okay. think, I think he has enough in the tank that he can beat them three times. All right, Indians and Toronto. What do you think? I think Cleveland. I think Cleveland in five. Wow. Okay. How about you? I I said Cleveland in six. I think the I think the Cubs end up beating the Dodgers in six, so we'll find out. Well, I next hope week you're right, right and I'm wrong about that. I I just think the Dodgers are going to be awfully tough to beat with that bullpen and with the, with the Kershaw at the top. Yeah, I agree. Hey, we'll talk to you again next week, Mark. Have a good one, Dave. That's going to do it for us on this Monday night. Hope you've enjoyed the early edition. Let's go Tribe as they take on the Toronto Blue Jays in Game Three. Coming up in just a few minutes. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show. But most of all, our thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, coming up this Friday night, we've got high school football for you on UltimateSportsTalk.com. As Wayne Dale goes to Smithville, we'll be on the air at 6.30 with the pregame show, 7 o'clock with the kickoff. And Mark and I will be back again next Monday night, hopefully talking about a World Series matchup for the Cleveland Indians. Until then, for Mark, I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good night, everybody, and go Tribe!
The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down the corner the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston.